Let's go ahead and stand together in honor of God's word. Kind of overpowering you all this morning. Rather than reading from the book of Nehemiah, we're going to go to the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, read several verses there, then I'll have you sit down and I'll read Nehemiah rather than having you stand through a long reading. But I want us to tie the law, the Leviticus code, in with our sermon today because this is a lot of the exploitation of the people of Israel was directly related to the violation of the law of Moses giving in the book of Leviticus. So in Leviticus chapter 25, if you'll find your places there, verses 36 and 37, we'll start with verse 35, I'm sorry, 35 through 37 and then 39 through 42. If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, and here's the command, then you shall help him like a stranger or sojourner, that he may live, that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brethren may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him food at a profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. Verse 39, And if any one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, You shall not compel him to serve as a slave, as a hired servant, and as a sojourner he shall be with you, and he shall serve you until the year of jubilee. Then he shall depart from you, his and his children with him, and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers. For you, they, my people, they are my servants, whom I have Brought out of the land of Egypt, they shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them with rigor, but you shall fear the Lord your God. Fear the Lord your God. Father, some of these laws seem unrelated to us, and yet, God, as we read these passages, we can glean eternal principles that are for the New Testament church. And we think of what Jesus said when he began the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, I've not come to destroy the law. I have come to fulfill the law. So God, there is a spiritual element to these laws that Christ fulfilled. He is our jubilee. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is the one who gave an example, who never oppressed anyone, but rather gave up his wealth so that through his poverty, he might enrich our lives. So, Father, I pray that even though this is an Old Testament passage, it's a law given to the nation of Israel, God, it says in 
2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for instruction, for correction, for reproof, that we might be partakers of your glory and that we as your children might be thoroughly, thoroughly equipped to do every good and godly work. So we pray that to this end this morning as we go through Nehemiah chapter 5. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles now. Um, I'm going to have to just turn that thing away. Okay. Um, so, Nehemiah chapter 5. Everybody turn to Nehemiah chapter 5, and we're going to read together. Verses 1 through 13, and I want you to keep in mind the passages that we just read. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there was also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and our vineyards and our houses that we might be be able to buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and on our vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. Indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been brought into slavery, and it's not our power to redeem them, for others have our lands and our vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and I said to them, each one of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them, and I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who are sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the nations, because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury or giving of selling things for interest. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, and their olive groves, and their houses, also the hundredth of the money, the interest and the grain, and the new wine, and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore, and it will, and it will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests, and I required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment, and I said, so... May the Lord God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform his promise, this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly 
said amen and praised the Lord and the people did according to the promise. So this morning I just want us to just to talk a few minutes about what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. How are our lives to reflect that? How are we different? How are we unique from the rest of the world? And we can see in this passage that the children of Israel were acting just like the pagan nations around them. And we can see how Nehemiah was filled with with anger, righteous indignation because of their actions. So I just want to just ask a question, and and, uh, you want to just shout out an answer. I won't shoot you down, I promise. Unless it's really bizarre, and I don't think anybody's going to do that. So just just in your own mind, as you're meditating on this passage, and what I'm asking you to think about, what are some of the distinguishing marks of a follower of Christ? Just, Just sort of in general, what would we say really distinguishes a believer from the unbelieving world? Generosity. I heard that two people said at the same time. We saw that in this passage, didn't we? Nehemiah is exemplifying generosity. He says, I am lending. I am giving what I've got. So this this should mark a true follower of Christ. Generosity. Anything else? Yes. Forgiveness. And what did they need to forgive in this passage? They needed to forgive debts, didn't they? Just forgive them. I'm not going to hold this against you. I'm not going to require what I think is owed me. Generosity, forgiveness, anything else that we see? Love. Jesus said this in John's gospel, all men will know that you are my disciples. How? By your love one for another. Generosity, forgiveness, love. Anything else? Restitution. That you are willing to get things right with people. Didn't we see this in this passage? What did they do when they were rebuked? They said, we need to give restitution. We don't want this enmity in the family of God. As followers of Christ, those are the things that should be indicative of us. I had these things written down, and you guys have nailed them all. So I want us just to to turn and look at a New Testament passage that really kind of highlights the difference between us and the world. So turn in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, and we'll see some of the things that you just enumerated. Matthew chapter 5, 38 through 42. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now that sounds like restitution, doesn't it? But actually, this was a law forbidding abusive restitution. This was a law given to the judge to make sure that you didn't extract more than what was necessary. It was a just payment for a crime that was committed against you. And they were taking this out of context and exploiting one another. 
you've heard this, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you this, don't resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. Generous in our spirit, forgiving. You guys mentioned that this morning. If any man wants to sue you, generosity, here it is. Let him take your coat also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, you go with him two miles. These are things that are distinguishing true followers of Jesus Christ. Give to him who asks you. Those poor people who didn't have anything to eat back in Nehemiah's day, this is what Christ expected of them in the Old Testament, and this is what he expects of his church, his people in the New Testament. You heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, so that we will reflect who our God is. This was Israel's role in the Old Testament. They were to reflect to all the nations around them. This is the covenant that God made with Abraham. Abraham, I will bless you, and Abraham, you will be a blessing. And everyone who blesses you, Abraham, I will bless, and everyone who curses you, I will curse. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In that nutshell covenant with Abraham, that was Israel's role in the Old Testament. And we, as God's church in the New Testament, are to reflect our Father in heaven by generosity, forgiveness, restitution, compassion, love, all those things that we're seeing here that Jesus spoke of. For if you love those who love you, what reward? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. Doesn't the world love its own? But as followers of Christ, we are to live out of this world. We are not of this world. This is not our home. This is not our residency. We're aliens. We're strangers. We're foreigners. And we ought to act like strangers and foreigners. Call yourself a Jesus freak, whatever. We ought to be different. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Don't even tax collectors do the same. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, I've already talked about this a little bit, but what was Israel's role among the Gentiles? Again, just go ahead and feel free to share some things. What was Israel's role? I'll help us out a little bit. So I'm going to turn, and I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. So we're asking the question, what was Israel's role among the nations in the Old Testament? And Moses went up to the mount of God, and he called, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you 
shall be a special treasure to me above all the people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nations, nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now I want you to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. We'll see a similar passage. And then it's interesting that Peter combines this passage from Exodus. He combines it with this passage in Deuteronomy. And you know what Peter does? He applies it to the New Testament church. In many ways, we are... I'll, I'll shut up because I, I want you guys to be thinking. I don't want to give you all the answers. So turn over to Deuteronomy. Chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a special people for himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. So we see several titles given to God's people, don't we? One was a special treasure a holy, sanctified, a separate nation from all the other nations, and a kingdom of priests. So you have to think about, now, what was the role of a priest in the Old Testament? The role of a priest was to be a mediator between God and man. Now, we don't have a priest in the New Testament, do we? Because there is only one advocate between us and the Father, the man Christ Jesus. He is our great high priest. So in that sense, again, Jesus did not destroy the law. Jesus completely fulfilled the law. But think about Israel's role now as a kingdom of priests, a special holy treasure to God, and a holy kingdom. So what was their role among all the Gentile people around them, going back to the covenant of Abraham, in you, your seed, your offspring, all people will be blessed. Several ideas. What was Israel's role? To lead others to Christ. Well said, Robert. That was their role. Who were they looking forward to? They were looking for the Messiah, weren't they? They were looking for that seed. And as people were attracted to them because of their uniqueness, they would lead people to their Messiah, to faith in Christ. Now, how? what instrument did God give them in order to fulfill that? So let's answer that question next. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. What instrument did God give them to fulfill that divine commission. By the way, this is, this is the doctrine of election. This is the doctrine of election. This is why God elects a nation. God does not elect to the exclusion of all other people. No. As William Lane Craig so aptly put it, God elects so that it goes to everyone. That's the purpose here. And so look at 
Deuteronomy chapter 4 and, and what God is going to use to draw people to this conclusion that there's a unique people. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you are going to possess. You're going into this land filled with Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, and all the other termites. And God says, I want you to be special. I'm giving you commandments when you go into this land. Therefore, be careful to observe them. All the things that he just talked about. Why? For this. What is this referring to? It's the statutes, it's the judgments, it's all God's holy law. This, this is your wisdom and this is your understanding where? In the sight of the people. What will they do? They will hear of what? These statutes. And what will they say? Surely this is a great nation and a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near as the Lord their God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him? They were a kingdom of priests. And what great nation is there that has such statutes that are righteous and judgments that are in this law which are set before you this day? So what was the instrument, what was the tool that God was going to use to fulfill that role of bringing other nations to the Messiah? God's law. Pretty simple. That's, that's the answer. It was all those statutes that we read about this morning in Leviticus chapter 25 and all those 613 laws when somebody got in debt, there was a way to get out of that debt. In fact, every a slave was, was, no, was not even considered a slave. They were an indentured servant until that debt was paid off. And every six years, slaves were set free. And every single debt that you owed, every 50 years, it was released and forgiven. What other nation had laws like that? that were so just and fair and equitable that kept people out of poverty. Laws that said if you were hungry and you were destitute, you could walk through somebody's field and you could freely pick whatever there was there needed. They didn't have a welfare system. They had, they, you didn't have to worry about widows in the Old Testament. There was the laws of the leveret marriage that required a near kinsman, and you all are studying about that in the book of Ruth. Beautiful laws like no other nation on the earth. And people said, I am attracted to that God. Now I want us to turn to the New Testament. I want us to go over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10.
referring to the New Testament church. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. And here's the purpose clause that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the New Testament church. We are fulfilling the same role that God had for Israel in the Old Testament. Verse 10. Who were these people? You were once not a people. But now you are the people of God who have not obtained mercy. Now you've obtained mercy. That's right out of the book of Hosea. And Paul the Apostle applies that in Romans chapter 9 to why God judicially blinded and hardened Israel temporarily so that those who were not a people, Gentiles, might come into the kingdom of Christ. And that's our role. So let's just examine really quickly why this great outcry. Why was there this great outcry? I'll just sort of summarize the three reasons that I see here. This great outcry in the book of Nehemiah. It's when God's people willingly and knowingly overlook the needs of God's people. This is outrageous to God, and it's a great outcry. It was happening in the book of Acts, wasn't it? When the Grecian Hebrew converts, not converts, they were Greek-speaking widows, they were being neglected in the daily distribution, and there was an outcry that came before the the apostles and before the church, and they settled that, and they, they selected the deacons for that ministry. Same thing happening here. In the Old Testament, where people were neglecting and willingly overlooking the needs of other people. Secondly, when others are being taken advantage of. And thirdly, when people are capitalizing on other people's misfortune. Now, how can we summarize this in the New Testament? Just listen to these verses. As followers of Christ, when one of our members suffers... Beloved, all of us suffer with that person. And I'm so thankful for what I see going on at North Valley, whatever we're called, Bible Church here, God's people. When someone has a sickness, when someone is in the hospital, when someone's lost a loved one, this church rallies around them and probably floods them with more food than they're ever going to eat. But praise God, that's what God expects of us. When one of us suffers, we all join in. This week, I got a prayer request sent to me from a mother. And that text came to me. I sent it to another, and it quickly went through the entire church. When one of us rejoices, all of us rejoice together because we are a body. We are a family. This is what God expects. As the followers of Christ, nothing should be done through selfish ambition. 
But as followers of Christ, in lowliness of mind, we should esteem others better than ourselves. As followers of Christ, we should be looking not out for my own interests, but also for the interests of others. And basically, that's exactly why this great outcry went. They were not looking out for others. They were looking out for their own advantage. And we can do the same thing. So what was the solution? The solution was Nehemiah bringing these people together for a counselor. And what he hit on were two key things. One was we need to have a healthy fear of God. And secondly, we need to know and understand that the way we live and the way we act is either going to bring a reproach on the Savior or it's going to bring Him glory and honor. And that's what Nehemiah reminded them of. He says, you guys are a reproach now among your enemies. So this fear of God, it's done through several ways. And one of the greatest ways that God has designed the church, and that is through accountability. There is no lone ranger Christian in the New Testament. Not a one. Everyone that is saved becomes incorporated into the body of Christ. And whatever location you live in, Paul wrote to churches that dwelt in that area who came and congregated and assembled together where God gave various spiritual gifts to edify and to build each other up. We desperately need accountability. Go through and do a Bible study of all the one another verses in the New Testament, and you'll be surprised how many there are. We need accountability. And that's what Nehemiah does. He brings them together. Verse 6, he says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry, and I had serious thought. The Hebrew word is pronounced melech. And you might be familiar a little bit with that term, melech, sadiq, the king of righteousness. Melech means king. That's the verb for serious thought. And how is it translated, theory of serious thought? If you've got an old King James... It's reflexive. I thought with myself or I consulted with myself. The word melech in the verb means to rule or to adjudicate or to come to a decision. And that's what Nehemiah was doing here. That's what he was doing with his serious thought. He was coming to a ruling in his own mind. I have got to do something. I have got to hold these people accountable. And then he rebuked them, and the word for rebuke literally means to take someone to court to contend and to bring evidence against them. So now he's going to expose them, and this is what accountability, true accountability is. You don't let people off the hook. You make them answer for what they're doing. Now, we, it makes us uncomfortable sometimes, doesn't it? But every one of us that have been held accountable, we thank God later on for that person that God put in our life. He called an assembly. Lending with interest was a violation of God's law. We read that in Leviticus chapter 25, didn't we? As followers of Christ, this is what we are told in the New Testament. If any one of you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back. Let him know that he's turned a sinner from the air of a way, and he saves a soul from death. What a wonderful promise that we have in the New Testament. As followers of Christ, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, 
which does not lead to death. He will ask, and he, God, will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. We need accountability. So that's one of the ways the fear of God is instilled in our hearts. He gave them a wake-up call in 8 and 9. He said to them, according to our ability, whatever we had, our, the total sufficiency is the idea of the Hebrew here. I, the, the sufficiency that I had that to the extent that I was able, everything that I had, Nehemiah is saying, really, to the, according to my ability, everything that I had. Now, that's what the Philippian church did, didn't they? According to their ability and beyond their ability, Paul said, they freely gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. That's an attitude of generosity. That's a true Christian. And so Paul says here, I mean, Nehemiah, Paul was in Philippians. Nehemiah says here in verse 8, according to our ability, what did they do? We redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. And now look at this emphatic word. Now indeed. I can't believe it. In other words, look what you guys are doing. It's a wake-up call. Look what you have done. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren or shall they be sold to us? Verse 9, then, well, verse, the rest of this verse says, they were silent and they found nothing to say. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Surely you shall walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies. So the wake-up call was a glaring contrast between sacrificial giving and self-centered motives. What a contrast. And that's what we ought to be as the church. Nehemiah used every means that they could to redeem their brother from all the nations. What a testimony of sacrifice. As the New Testament says, as followers of Christ, Jesus is our example, isn't he? This we know love. Why? How do you and I know love? Because Jesus Christ did what? He laid down his life for us. And what's the rest of the verse say? We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And that's what Nehemiah was exemplifying. That's what Christ exemplified. That's what the church is to exemplify. They were in direct violation of the law by selling their brethren into slavery. Leviticus 25, 39. As followers of Christ... If we have whatever means we have, we are commanded to provide one for another. 1 John 3.13 says this, Whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need, and he shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, the rhetorical question, how does the love of God dwell in him? The answer is, it doesn't. Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Well, I've got a lot more. But I think we're going to have to stop where we're at because we have the Lord's Supper to observe. So I'm just going to kind of quickly go over the last part of this passage. Our testimony before the world is at stake. That's what Nehemiah was saying. We become a reproach to the nations around us. They're looking. They are watching us. They're watching this wall go up, brick by brick. We've tried everything that we could to discourage it, and the world knows that God is building this wall. And by all means, let's not destroy our testimony by shooting each other within. The greatest casualties to the Christian church are Christians attacking other Christians. 
let's let not let's don't let that happen to North Valley Bible Church. Genuine repentance and the fear of God. It came upon them. What did they do? They restored the land. They gave it back willingly. And God was going to weigh their actions and their motives. Nehemiah symbolically shakes the skirt of his garment and says, May God do this. Here's the power of accountability and the power of the fear of God. All the assembly, what did they do? They all said, Amen. That simply means this is true. Amen. It's the Hebrew word. What else did they do? They praised God. And thirdly, they did according. They followed through. How should we be different from the world? New North Valley Bible Church, we should be hospitable. We should be welcoming. We should be genuine. We should be real. Secondly, we need to be serious about accountability. If you're not in a Bible study group, if you're not in a prayer group, find somebody else in the church. If your schedule doesn't allow you to do it, find someone that you can talk to during the week. You're not alone. We have our family here for each other. We need accountability. We need to use our talents and our talents and resources, not for our own benefits, but for the benefits of the body of Christ. We need to receive correction with humility. Those nobles that were exploiting, they accepted. Nehemiah said, I, they put a zipper over their mouth. They were silent, and they didn't say a word. They said, amen, you're right, this is true. They gave it back, they restored it. Our submission and love should be evident in action. North Valley Bible Church does this over and over again. I already mentioned meals. I can't tell you how many times somebody in this church has walked up to me with an envelope filled with money, and they'll say, Patrick, go and give this to so-and-so. That happens so often in this church. I am so thankful for what God is doing at North Valley Bible Church. Projects of construction. They just get done because people have a heart to work, as it says in Nehemiah. But I don't want us to be content with where we're at. I want to finish with this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. But as touching brotherly love, I have no need to write to you. So this morning, concerning brotherly love, I don't need to lecture you. Why? Because you have been taught by God. If God so loved you, then you ought to love one another. Everyone who is begotten by him loves also those who are begotten. 1 John. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do it toward all the brethren, which are in all of Macedonia. But here's the exhortation. Brethren, I want you to increase more and more. Let's don't ever become content with where we're at as a church. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll do some quiet reflection as Tracy comes before we take our communion. Father, what a privilege to start a prayer by calling the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, Father. 
Lord, sovereign God, you are our Father. You've adopted us into your family. God, we were children of wrath, just as everybody else was. But God, you have washed us, you've sanctified us, and you've justified us in the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And that's why we take this communion meal every month. It's a reminder that all we, like sheep, were going astray. And you laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. God, I pray that as your people, God, that we would be so radically different from the world. Just like in the millennial kingdom, people are going to come up to a Jewish man and grab him by the sleeve and say, tell us about your God. I pray, God, at North Valley Bible Church that we would sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts so that we would be ready for everyone who asks us a reason for the hope that's in us. That, God, we would have our conduct honest among the Gentiles so that they might glorify God on the day of visitation. That, God, that we would draw people to our assembly by our love one for another. God, that this would be a place where people are healed. That this church would be a place where people are growing. That this is a place where people are not judged for their past, but praised God for the renewing of the Holy Spirit to change them. We pray this in Jesus' name. time in your heart, um, and then uh, I'll have our men come up to distribute uh, the elements of the Lord's Supper.